guys and gals here with us this morning. We are going to continue in our series on knowing God. Um, If you're new to City Church, this is something we continue to talk about here, about having this personal relationship with God. I think there's enough of religion in the world, ritual, religion, empty dead religion, and not enough of intimate relationship with the one true living God. So see see if you can uh, finish this statement here. God is blank. God is... There's a number of words that we can fill in. God is... God is... God is... God is... God is one more. Okay, we can go on and on and on to speak about the attributes, the beauty, the perfection of our God. And it is good for us to spend much time thinking about who He is, especially in the light of a fallen, broken world when there are earthquakes that kill over 25,000 people, like the one that took place in Syria and Turkey this past Monday. Okay? It is good for us to think about God being perfect in a fallen, broken world that has been affected by sin and death and suffering. And so when we gather together as the people of God on Sunday mornings, we worship God together and we set our mind and our heart affections on the Lord who is perfect, who is good, who is beautiful, who is righteous and just and faithful, loving and true. And we can go on and on talking about him, who he is. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Okay? It's important for us to think much about who God is and respond appropriately to who He is. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this. He says, We are cruel to ourselves. If we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it, the world becomes strange, mad, a painful place. And life in it is disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. And so let us not be cruel to ourselves. Let us do good to our own souls by focusing in on who God is and learning about who He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. As good, as as loving, as faithful. And we're going to continue from last week. Uh, Part 2 of Knowing God's Ways. I usually don't do part 2. I like to come up with a different title. But this is, the, this is the same thing. We're just expounding on what we were talking about last week from Psalm 103, verses 6 through 7, 6 through 8. For he made known his ways to Moses. I'm, I'm sorry. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. David in Psalm 103 we looked at was celebrating who God is, and that is fuel to the worshipers of God. We get a a glimpse and we magnify who He is. All right, 
my stepdad helped help me and my family out because we have a we have a sh- um, a roof our, our back patio roof was coming down on our roof and digging into it and it was just something that needed to be addressed for quite some time and we needed somebody who was skilled who could take care of the job and my stepdad stepped up to the plate and he welded the he cut it and, and welded the, the the four pillars of the roof up about a foot and then put these these steel bars going across and he got the, the roof to, to slant right. And, and it just, he just did a major job for us all in one day. I just watched him and I'm amazed at his handiwork and grateful that he's my stepdad. <laughs> and he loves Jesus because he sure did help us out because that could have been a huge bill. Uh, and, and he did that out of love and service. But but this morning, my, my wife and I noticed that because because that back patio roof has been raised up, about a foot, we got a lot more sunlight coming into the house, all right? And I like to sit. I have a little nook in the back. One of my little nooks in the house is in the back. And in the mornings when the sun comes up, I like to see the colors that are coming up from the sunrise. I don't know about you, but I love anywhere, like when I'm traveling, or I like to find the, the spots to see the view where I can see a good sunrise or a good sunset because the heavens declare the glory of God and I want to get a good glimpse of God's beauty that's shining forth in creation. And so this morning as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about my prayer, my desire for us is that our view of who God is would be expanded, that we would get a better picture of who He is and that our souls would be refreshed and stirred to worship Him for who He is. So last week we spent a good deal of time talking about God's justice and his righteousness. We, we, we went through the story of the Exodus, how God showed that he worked righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Namely in the lives of the Egyptians who had been slaves in Israel for 400 years. And God says, it's finally time. God knew, he saw, he heard their cry. He knew the situation and he acted. He raised up a Moses to take action and and be an instrument of his deliverance. And he brought his justice or judgment on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And at the same time, he freed, he brought justice to the Israelites and freeing them up to experience freedom in life and worship God freely. All right. And so we looked at that. We looked at how, how God worked righteousness and justice, how his ways are just and true. All right? And so so in the the, the, the the Exodus narrative, we see Moses encountering God in the scripture. God shows up in his life and he has an assignment for him. He has a purpose. He has a calling. And Moses responds to that. God, God delivers the Israelites. And they and what we're, we're going to look at here a little bit further out. So so in, in in Exodus 34, God delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea. Okay, they're they're traveling through the wilderness. They saw God's uh, plagues upon the Egyptians. They 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 are, they were experiencing God providing water for them, manna for them. God is taking care of them. And then we have this, this incident that happens where when Moses goes up to the mountain to get the, 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 the Ten Commandments, to get the law, and he, he comes back and he finds the Israelites had made a golden calf. And they started to they, they threw all their gold together and, and Aaron helped them create this golden calf and they worshiped the golden calf. And Moses come, came back and it sounded like a Super Bowl game. I was like, what's that sound? Sorry, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> he came back. What's that sound? Josh was like, it's the sound of war. No, no, that's that's a party. They're partying and they're worshiping this golden calf thinking, oh, this is the one who delivered us out of Egypt. So twisted, so perverse. And God was upset about it. All right. And a lot of people died. 3000 people died. Okay. And so Moses cries out to God. Moses, Moses interceded for the people. All right. Moses cried out to God. Moses asked in in Exodus 33 that God would show him his glory, that God would show him his ways. And what we have here in Exodus 34 is we see God answering that very prayer. God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. 
Okay, And what we see throughout the narrative, throughout the wilderness narrative, we see that the depth of someone's relationship with God is revealed is revealed by how they respond when life gets tough. Okay, Exodus uh, 15, when the Israelites hadn't had water for three days and, and they come to, to water and it's bitter, it's the, the, the waters are bitter and it says that the Israelites complained. <sighs> Complaining. They, they tempted God. Moses cried out to God. Moses trusted God and God showed him a tree and he threw the tree into the water and turned it from bitter to sweet. Moses knew God's ways. And so he responded differently when life test came his way. He wasn't perfect, right? But let's look at how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. He answers that prayer, okay? He puts him in the cleft of the rock. He says, you can't, you can't see me fully, Moses, because it will kill you, okay? Like, like a little bug in a, in a bug zapper. You get, you get cl- the bug gets too close to the zapper, boom, it's dead, right? All right, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you get a glimpse of the glory here. So he puts him in the, the cleft of the rock, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped and he said if i have found favor in your sight O lord please let the lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity our present our our iniquity our sin and take us for your inheritance here's our big idea this morning all god's people said Amen. amen God has revealed himself as the one true God who is merciful and gracious, patient, faithful, loving, and loving. He desires that we know and enjoy him personally. He desires that we know and enjoy him personally. So we see God revealed his glory to Moses. Moses requested that God would show him his ways, show him his glory. Moses didn't want to continue the journey without the presence of God. He said, God, if you're not going to go with us, don't send us out. How else will, will, will we be distinguished unless your presence goes with us? The people of God are distinguished by the presence of God. God is with us. All right? May we have that same earnestness and that same longing for God as, as the, the, the number one person that we want and need in our lives. That, that we're not willing to, to move on without Him and forget Him. So in the book of Exodus, we see God revealing Himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, And each of these names or titles that are given about God in the scripture speak about who He is. His name or his, these, these attributes speak about who he is and how he operates. He made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him and that Abraham would have lots of descendants and that through Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And ultimately Jesus came and fulfilled, was, was a part of that fulfillment of that blessing coming to all peoples. God revealed himself to to Moses as I am. And and, and at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encountered God and this bush was on fire and yet it wasn't being consumed. And and he was intrigued and he went over towards it and he has this conversation with God in Exodus chapter 3. 
And God tells him about his assignment that he has for Moses. And Moses is like, man, you know, um, I can't speak very good in, in chapter four. And, and he tells him, to, when, Mo, when Moses asked God, who do I say is sending me? He says, I am is sending you. Tell him, I am is sending you. God revealed himself as a consuming fire to Moses, as a God of justice who works justice and righteousness for all who are oppressed. In the text we're looking at today, he revealed himself as Yahweh, or translated as the Lord, which is the personal name for God. God revealed himself as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, just, and even jealous in the book of Exodus. And so we're going to look at some of these. I've combined some of these together. But the first one that we're going to look at is that God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Okay? This is a, uh, the, the proper name um, of, of the one true God. And knowledge and use of the name implies personal or covenant relationship. The name pictures God as the one who exists and causes existence. He is Yahweh, the creator the one who always was, who always will be. And, 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 and the and Hebrews tells us when we come to God, we must believe that he, that he is. That he is, that he exists. And God reveals himself to Moses telling him his, his name, Yahweh. This points to God being the self-existent one, the eternal one. Tim Mackey says, Yahweh means he will be, which is which will spin your brain a bit. It's, it's a fitting name for the eternal creator of all things. A profound statement that this God is the ultimate author of all reality. The one without beginning or end. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. He does a great job, by the way, on these attributes. If you want to check those out on the Bible Project, he has a little short series on the character of God. And he does an excellent job uh, explaining these attributes that are listed in this next section here. We also see that God revealed himself to Moses as merciful and gracious. These are his ways. This is, this is who he is. Okay? When God caused his glory and his goodness to pass by Moses, he proclaimed, he preached who he is. He described himself with these words. He, he had words to describe himself. And we're hearing those words today. You know what? I'm, I was thanking the Lord. God bless you, sweetie. I was thanking the Lord this morning that I get the privilege to, as my job to think about and study who God is and proclaim his name to you and enjoy him together and worship him together. God does this. He declares himself. There's the self-disclosure of disclosure of who he is. And the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is he's merciful and he's gracious. Back in Exodus 33, in verse 18 and 19, when Moses was interceding, for the Israelites, and, and he made this request. He said, please show me your glory. And, and, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay, notice how these are, these are coupled together throughout the Bible, right? And, and this statement, the Lord is great, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is uh, quoted or alluded to roughly 10, 10 to 12 times in the Old Testament. Some scholars uh, who, who write about Exodus saying that the, the book of Exodus is moving us toward this statement, towards this reality of this is who God is. And the, the Israelites, when they would pray, or David, when he would pray, in, in like Psalm um, 86, verse 15, 
In, in contrast to, uh, to, to vicious men, ruthless men who sought to take his life. He said, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It gave springboard to David's prayers, to the saints' prayers throughout history, knowing God's character. This is who you are. David appealed to who God is. This is who you are, God. And these men that are trying to take my life, they're, they're ruthless, they're wicked, they're evildoers, they're speaking falsely and doing terrible things. But you, O oh God, are merciful and gracious. And God is free to dispense his grace and mercy to anyone he wants as much as he wants. Now, a lot of people have a problem with that. We have a prophet in the Old Testament that had a problem with God being gracious to whom he will be gracious and merciful to whom he will be merciful. Y'all know who I'm talking about? Who we who we're going to bring up here? Good old Jonah. God had an assignment for Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, the enemies, these cruel people, and to warn them that judgment was coming. But y'all know the story. Good old Jonah didn't follow God's voice at first. He tried to play hide and seek with God. How many of y'all know if you try to play hide and seek with God, you're not going to win? All right? You're not going to win. So he runs. So Jonah actually goes he goes down to Tarshish. He's headed for Tarshish. He's going the opposite way of Nineveh. God had an assignment for him. He was calling him to missions. All right? To global missions. And Jonah's like, no, I'm out of here. Right? And God's grace overtook Jonah because God graciously disciplined him. All right. There was a storm. We see God working through creation, through circumstances to get Jonah's attention. And Jonah ends up getting thrown off into the sea because of his disobedience, because he wasn't cooperating with God's will. And God graciously had him swallowed up. God prepared a fish, it says. He was swallowed up. And he was down there for three days in the belly of this, this great fish. And he gets humbled by the, the discipline of God. And, and he cries out. He makes this statement that he, salvation is of the Lord within his prayer. So he prays. God causes the, the big fish to spit him out. He ends up going to Nineveh. Okay? And he preaches the message. And y'all know what happens, right? The people repent. They're like, oh man, God's going to destroy this place. We need to stop doing what we're doing. And so the people repent. And God has mercy on the Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites. Even though they were cruel and deserved judgment. And Jonah gets an attitude about it. He's like a, a, a pouting prophet in this. It's like a toddler fit. Like, why'd you give my brother or sister so many cookies? Like, you know, just it's, it's just ridiculous, right? And so this is his prayer here at the end of Jonah. And this is, this is the lesson in, in the story here that points to who God is and God's heart for all peoples, which should motivate us to missions, not run from missions. It should motivate us to, to share the good news of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ, not cause us to, to ignore and avoid people who need to hear it. He prayed. He prayed these, these words. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. Is this not what I said when I was in yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You know, he reveals his heart here. Like he didn't want the Ninevites to get mercy and grace. God says, I'll be gracious and merciful to whoever I want. You know, the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day seem to have the same kind of problem. When they saw sinners and tax collectors gathering around Jesus and eating with Jesus, and Jesus was forgiving people's sin and healing people and just accepting people, the, the religious leaders really got uptight about that. Like, man, if he's really from God, surely he wouldn't be just embracing them being kind and gracious to them. 
God is free to give mercy to whomever he wants and grace to whomever he wants. His mercy and grace can break out on anyone. That's good news. And so this is the, this is the God that we're, we see in the scripture. This is the snapshot of who we see in the scripture. We also see that he is a God that is slow to anger. He is a God that is slow to anger. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. Okay, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay? We're saved by grace. Right? We all, because we're sinners, we deserve death. God gives us mercy and grace through Jesus. But he's also slow to anger. He's slow to anger or he's patient. Okay, we had our community group this past Sunday had a great discussion about the wrath of God, and we discussed this. We wrestled with this idea about the God of the Bible getting angry. The, the Hebrew word for anger means nose, okay? Or representing the face or some part of the face. And in the Hebrew, when it talks about getting angry, uh, it, it, it's literally a hot nose. Like the nose gets hot. Okay, y'all know, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about here. Like when somebody's really mad or maybe when you're mad, like your nostrils start flaring, right? And your face starts to maybe turn red. If you're a little more light-complected, you can see it a little bit more, right? Your face starts to turn red. You get all worked up. Um, and, and then to, to, to be patient or slow to anger is to be, be a, a long nose, all right? So it, it takes longer for the nose to get hot, Okay, it takes longer for the nose to get get hot, and then and then or to be um, uh, arrogant is it speaks about having a high nose. You know, you you snooty, right? High nose, looking down upon people. Okay, now I, I love this. I love that God includes this in here. Okay, and there, and I, I know to our modern ears, for many of us who hear this, it rubs us the wrong way. <clears throat> Right? That the God of the Bible gets angry. Right? That there is anger. And so let's just talk a little bit about what is, what is the wrath of God? Because we see this both in the Old Testament. And if you're reading through your Bible, you're, you're coming across a number of places in the Old Testament that speak about God getting angry. And, you know, the same thing if you're reading the New Testament. You're going to come across a number of verses that speak about this word wrath. God's anger. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about it. I think one of the reasons that many of us have a hard time uh, thinking about this, talking about this, is because it's misunderstood. All right? We don't want to perceive or, or we don't want God to be displayed as someone who is cruel, as someone who is emotionally unstable and, and untrustworthy, and, and you don't know what the loose cannon, you don't know what they're going to do. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says that the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says it's a deep, intense anger and indignation. God's wrath is his reaction to our sin and is an expression of his justice. Colin Smith says that God's wrath is his holy response to the intrusion of evil into this world, his settled resolve that evil will not stand. Okay, God looks at this fallen, broken world, and he looks at oppressors and those who do injustice and oppress other people, the powerful crushing the weak and taking advantage of the weak. And God just does not sit by indifferent. Okay? He sees the wickedness in the world and he's moved to take action because he's just and because he's righteous. Okay? Now I know again, this this is difficult for many of us to understand. My son, by the way, my son, when I was reading four or five years ago, when I was reading the narrative of the Israelites to my son and and he heard about God getting angry in in what we were reading, he said, "Wait, wait, 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 you know, God got angry? Because in my son's mind, he equates anger with, you know, something that's wrong. That, that something is good. I, I did something wrong or you're wrong for being angry, right? 
And so I, 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 and as I was explaining it to him, I started to sing the song that our family has sung for, for many years now, 10,000 Reasons. You're rich in love. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great. Your heart is kind. And that's all it took for my son to have a satisfying answer to help him understand God is slow to anger. Okay, he doesn't have a short fuse or a short nose. Uh, a long nose is a, is a way to, to describe it. Uh, not that he has a, the father has a, a literal uh, nose here. Um, but here, here's a couple things that will help us as we, we think about the, the wrath of God or the anger of God. First of all, he's slow to anger. Okay. Second of all, that God's wrath is judicial. It's, it's rooted in his, his justice, as J.I. Packer points out. The other thing is that God's wrath is provoked, right? It's, 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 it's a response to the evil that's, that's in the world, all right? Um, and then lastly, that, that God's wrath is, is chosen by sinners. It's, it's something, you know, that, that, that those who reject God and reject his ways... They experience the, the, the consequences of their, their actions, okay? The Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 1, uh, John chapter, chapter 13. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so it's good news for us, saints, that God is patient. Aren't you glad that he's patient? Amen. He was patient with the Israelites, but man, they tested him over and over with their stubbornness and hard-heartedness, all right? God has been patient, patient with each one of us. In, in 2 Peter 3, 9, uh, 3, 9, Peter describes God's patience in this and talking about uh, the return of Christ. Like, like, why hasn't Jesus come back? There's people, scoffers, who say, well, you know, what, where, where's he at? He said he's coming back. Why didn't he come back? Well, Peter answers that question, and he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count as slowness, but he's patient towards you. He's slow to anger, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay? And this, by the way, repentance is the category of people who experience the mercy and the grace of God's forgiveness. Okay? Those who turn to him, away from sin. We also see in verse 6 or 7, we see that God is loving and faithful. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this, this pair, this duo here, is repeated in the Old Testament. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed, it's a beautiful word, it's a rich word, and it means unfailing love, loyal love, devotion, kindness, often based on a prior relationship, especially a covenant relationship. So that's his steadfast love. Uh, the psalmist David, in, in Psalm 136, he, he lists a number of things that God has done to display his steadfast love and how God delivered them from, from Egypt. And, and the Israelites were to respond with his love, his hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. God did this, his love endures forever. God did this, his love endures forever. And then we see this other word, faithfulness, is emmet. And it means real reliability or trustworthiness, or it's translated as faithfulness, or truth. That which conforms to reality and contrasts to what is false. So this faithfulness is connected to truth and reality. Of somebody who is trustworthy, and God has proven that throughout the scripture, that God is faithful to his promises, ultimately climaxed in the person of Jesus Christ and coming into this world to bring rescue. We also see in verse 7 that God is forgiving. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. This is what he states in verse 7. This flows from his mercy. This flows from his grace. This is what God does for us. And this is who God is. He's a God who forgives. Okay? 
But but who is it exactly that God does forgive? Is it is it is it an automatic? Is it automatic for everyone? Because as we look at the next part of the verse here, that there are those who don't get cleared of their guilt or forgiven that he describes because God is also just. Verse 7b says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay? Now, we got we got to ask ourselves okay does god forgive sins or does he not does he not forgive sins is he going back and forth yes he forgives sins okay well whose sins does he forgive does he just blanketly just say i forgive everybody's sins cuz he's he's not an unjust judge that just clears the guilty you know you, you got all kinds of cases that that come before the court and the judge is like oh, you're off you're off you're off <laughs> You know, you, you had a hard time growing up. You're off. You're you're good. You know, he doesn't just unjustly just let people off the hook. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. And so, where does that work together? Well, if we look at the the Old Testament, we see like in the book of Jonah, those who experienced his mercy were those who repented. You look at Joel two, Joel two verse thirteen. He says, render your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Okay, around 40 times it speaks about God relenting from disaster in the Old Testament. Because he is gracious and merciful. He has, the, Ezekiel says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like he, he wants people to repent and experience his mercy and experience his grace. Is this heavy, heavy for you guys this morning? That's good. No? Okay, thank you. Well, again, I know that to the modern ears, this is a, a challenge. This is a challenge for us. It's, it, it, let, let, me, let me read Ezekiel here. Ezekiel 18. He says, but you say, why should, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So God doesn't delight in uh, the, the wicked that perish, and God will hold people accountable, every person accountable for their own actions yet yet what we see he, he makes that clear in ezekiel yet what we see in exodus is that our sin as parents our sinful choices will affect our children to the third and the fourth generations that's heavy there are natural consequences that are going to be played out moms and dads we should this should sober us up Right, there are natural uh, consequences that are played out through through our sinful patterns that, that our children observe and that they take on. But God doesn't punish the children and hold them accountable for for the father's and the mother's sins. Right, each one is held accountable for their own sins. But He does hold children accountable for the sins of their fathers that they themselves walk in. And make a conscious choice to follow their parents' sinful ways. Alright? And you know the good news is? Is that cycle can be broken. Amen. Yes. I'm standing here today as an example. Amen. A life. Where that cycle has been broken by the mercy and the grace of God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The curse has been broken. Hallelujah. I was on the trajectory of my father's ways until I met Jesus. I was headed, I was following the path of immorality, drunkenness, addiction, 
just like my father did. Until Jesus reached in and he broke into the history of my life. He was merciful and gracious to whomever he wants. And he, he showed me mercy. He showed me grace. And this is where, this, when we get this, now it's important that we're talking about this. And I, I know I share these truths from Exodus 34 at the, at the risk of offending some people. Okay? And this may not be the best passage to pe- preach if you're trying to get numbers in the church. But we're not just trying to get numbers in the church. We want, we want our people to grow in depth of knowledge of God. And knowing the one true God intimately and accurately. And so here's the good news. John 1, 8, uh, 17 through, through 18. We have a New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Right? He's the same God. There's two covenants. All right? But it's the same God who was revealed in the Old Testament as the Lord gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you know what? He came into this world and he pitched his tent. He tabernacled amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. He he has displayed his glory. And John says, we've seen it. We've seen it. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. We get a clearer picture of what God is like through the person of Jesus. And we see that Jesus, he has shown us what he's like. I love it in John 17, 26. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying this beautiful high priestly prayer. And he, tells, he says to the Father, he says, Father, I have declared your name to the disciples you've given me. I've declared your name to them. And I will declare it so that the same love which you loved me with would be in them. Jesus is saying, I showed him what you've liked. I, I told him what you're like. John says, he, he, Jesus showed us what he's like. He displayed it. He declared it. And the effects of knowing God personally and intimately is that we take on his nature. Amen. Namely, in, in John 17, 26, love or hesed. Right? And this, this, this beautiful uh, couplet um, duo of, uh, in the Old Testament, um, steadfast love, hesed and emmet, and, and faithfulness. Scholars, scholars say, you know, John's probably has this in mind when he writes these words about Jesus, who's full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. The, the Greek word is charis. I believe the the, the Greek word for truth is. Um, I forgot it starts with A. Athena. Yes. Um, and so, so John is thinking like, this is, this is, this is him. This is the God of the Bible made manifest, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see Charles, Charles Wesley wrote hail incarnate deity. And so we get a clear picture in what Jesus did. He not only, he not only displayed what God is like. He not only declared what God is like, but Jesus satisfied the demands of justice on our behalf as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 You see, every year, the Jews, since the Passover, since the original Exodus, the, the Jews were commanded to celebrate the Passover and to, they were to take a, a, a lamb And they were to sacrifice that lamb in in remembrance of what they did at the first Passover. And they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of each home so that the the angel of death would pass over and not kill the firstborn like he did for all the Egyptian families. And there was wailing and weeping in Egypt for the families that didn't have the blood of the lamb over their homes. But the families, the Jewish families that did have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts, the angel of death passed over. And Jesus is that lamb for us. The lamb of God who takes away our sin. 
And His blood is over our lives. His blood has washed our lives. He delivers us from the penalty of our sin, which is death. You see, God, because He is a God of justice, He must punish sin. It has to be paid for. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. I, I love when I'm, when I'm talking to Muslims about their faith. And I, I love to ask them a few questions because they believe in that Allah is, is a God of justice. They believe that there is a judgment day and, and that Allah will, will punish sins on judgment day. But you know what they don't have that we, we Christians have? They don't have the assurance of forgiveness and salvation that we have, like the New Testament promises us. They don't. And so I, I love to just reason with them about sin. God's standard. They accept the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Okay, you think you're good, good person, take them through the Ten Commandments. Talk to them about judgment, reason with them about God's righteous standard, and then ask this question as they're feeling a little bit like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I've sinned. Ask the question, well, who's going to pay for that sin on the judgment day? Who's going to pay for it? Most of the time, you know what I get? I have to pay for it. I have to pay for it. And that is scary. That is scary, y'all. If I have to pay for my sins, that is very scary. But the good news is you and I don't have to pay for it. And we won't pay for it, saints. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, those of us who've turned to Jesus, we've turned away from our sins and we've put our faith in Jesus. We've taken refuge in the Son. We've put our trust in the Son of God who loved us and He gave Himself for us. Our debt is paid. Our sins are forgiven. And we can have confidence on the day of judgment when we die and we step into the eternity. We can have confidence that we are going to be with God forever because Christ has paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Do you see how, do you see how grasping these aspects of God helps us it helps us feel the weight of the good news, of how really good it is. Yes. I mean, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, I want to give you this cancer medicine to treat your sickness. But there's no diagnosis. There's no explanation. Hey, you have these symptoms. You're dying. If you don't take this medicine, you're going to die. It won't make sense to the patient until there's a diagnosis. And Romans 3 says that we've all sinned. We've sinned against God, but God sent Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And lastly, let's finish with this one here. That God is jealous. I don't know if you have spent much time thinking about this or not, but I think on the surface when we hear this, we may think, that sounds like somebody who's insecure, emotionally unstable, needs somebody to affirm, tell them how great they are, and yet, I think it was Oprah Winfrey when she read this about the God of the Bible, she rejected it. Right? There's, 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 there's something here when we hear about God being jealous. But think about this. Those of us who are, and God mentions it a, a number of times, you know, Exodus uh, 20 verse 5. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he mentions it in light of, it's in connection with. Israel worshiping other gods. I mean, what is that golden calf going to do for Israel? Are they, is, they, is that golden calf going to deliver Israel out of Egypt? Is that golden calf going to provide manna in the wilderness, food and drink and deliverance? Is that golden calf going to love them and be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger to them? No. The idols and the false gods of this world will not deliver. They're, 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 they're. God is the one true living God, Yahweh. And He's jealous for His people, for the affections of His people. He deserves the glory and the honor that He created us for. Right? Those of us who are, who are married, just think about this. Think if somebody is hitting on, flirting with your spouse. How would you feel? Would you feel a measure of jealousy if somebody's trying to pick up on your spouse? Yeah. Or, or vice versa, you know? 
Like yet you would have, because you love your spouse and your husband or your wife is yours and you're meant to be together, husband and wife for life till death do you part, you're going to feel some jealousy and maybe some anger. Holy anger, right? This is my wife. Maybe some justice. Right? Right. Because that's your, you're your in covenant relationship. And we have this covenant relationship with God. Okay? And, and, and he is jealous for us. Now, the, the New Testament also uses this kind of language, like in James chapter 4. James, when, when he confronts the spiritual adultery in James chapter 4, he says, Do you not know that the Spirit yearns jealously? Right? Within, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We're made for God, and God knows that us giving Him all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the very best thing for us. Because if you give your heart away and you give your life away fully to anything or anyone else, it's just going to break your heart. It's going to destroy your life. And God knows that it's for our good, that we love Him in response to His love for us, that we receive His love for us, and that we love Him back in response. And so, so our God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. He deserves glory and worship and honor and praise. He is good. And this is when Moses experienced God in this way, when God proclaimed his name and revealed himself to Moses. Verse 8 says that Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Here's the response. When we see who God is, we see him in truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. This is the response when we see his value, his glory, his beauty, his perfections. This is the appropriate response for you and I to worship him, to bow before him. And so let's close in just a couple of points of application. Respond and worship to God, delighting in his goodness and beauty. There's going to be a lot of worship happening today. I got a friend who loves the Kansas City Chiefs. And he's going to get charismatic today, I'm sure, during the football game. Okay? I mean, when you're a football fan, you unashamedly lift those hands, you yell, you clap, and woo! You express your devotion to your team, right? Because we're wired for worship. We're wired to do that. To delight in and worship the one true God. Now, those of, you, those of you who love the Cowboys, they let you down this year, right? You get excited, like, oh, right? It hurts. It stings. Every year. Every year. <laughs> Every year, right? But there's one true God, Yahweh, that you and I can worship and not be let down. And he's not going to fail us. He's not going to fumble the ball. He's not going to miss the mark. He wins. He reigns and rules forever. And we know the end of the story. Yes. We know where we're headed. And we know that we're going to be with our God. And, and that the brokenness that we experience in this world now, it's not going to be like this. It's not supposed to be like this. And it's not going to be like this. He's going to make all things new as we sang about earlier. He makes all things new. He's going to make all things new. Next, become more like God and by beholding God's perfect character revealed in Scripture. As I started off with A.W. Tozer, we tend to, by a secret law of the soul, to, to move towards our mental image of God. Okay? Behold Him as He's revealed in Scripture. We get a good snapshot of who He is. And this is what Paul says about Christians who are in the New Covenant. And as opposed to the, those who lived under the old covenant and Moses' ministry and this new ministry that we have because of the greater Moses, Jesus. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit, from the Lord who is the Spirit. We get the Spirit now, y'all. We have the Scriptures and we have the Spirit now. 
God has opened our eyes to see who he is, to really know him. And Jesus, Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Accept and appreciate the discipline of God in light of what we're looking at here. Accept and appreciate the discipline of God as something that is good and just. Hebrews 12. Don't despise his discipline, nor be discouraged when you're disciplined by him. My wife and I, we, we have four kids, and, and we do spank our children. I know that might be offensive to some. I hope we don't get thrown in jail for that. But I think we are slow to anger. But we, we, we exercise discipline because we believe that the Bible teaches that. And we exercise discipline when we think that this is what they need. This is what's best for them. And we emphasize, we, when we do discipline them, we let them know we love you, we're for you, we're not, we're not mad at you, not, we're not rejecting you. This is just a part of the sting. I need to get your attention right now. You're hurting yourself, you're hurting your siblings. This is not good. If you continue down this path, it's going to be really bad. So we have to get their attention. Sometimes we need a little pain to get some attention. As C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in the pleasures, but he, his pain is his microphone to us. He gets our attention with pain. Anyways, this is not a parenting sermon, so I'm going to move on. But God does appreciate God, accept and appreciate God's discipline. God is not a pushover. Okay, and, and as Christians, when, when we stray, God's going to deal with us as sons and daughters because he loves us. He's for us. He's not against us. And so when you are disciplined by God, don't don't think don't think as the Israelites did. God hates us and he brought us out here to destroy us. Can you believe that? They said that. Deuter read Deuteronomy one and two. They said God hates us and he brought us out here because he just wants to kill us. What a perversion of the heart of God. They missed it. They knew his acts. Moses knew his ways. And we want to be those who know the heart of God, know his ways, know him intimately. Accept and appreciate God's righteous judgment on those who persist in doing evil. At the end of Revelation, we see worship going up to God because he he judges evildoers, those who are oppressing and bringing injustice in the world in the last days. And the people of God are like, God, bring justice, show up. Like the, like the persistent widow crying out for justice. Get justice for me. And so appreciate that God is just. It's, it, and it's not our job to avenge. Romans 12 tells us we don't have to take vengeance in our hands. He says, leave, wrath, leave place for the wrath of God, it says in Romans 12. And so if you all would stand with me, let's respond. You know, every week here we have, we have a response song to hearing the sermon, to the word of God. Actually, if you go back to, we're going to pray this song together. We get a glimpse of who God is in the scripture and we respond in worship much like Moses did when he saw God. He saw God proclaimed his name. He got revelation of God's ways and he responded in worship. This is appropriate for us. And so let's do that. I'm sorry I didn't leave a whole lot of time for us to do that. But let's do that now. And before we before we respond in singing, I want to I want to lead us through this prayer from Psalm 116, a response from Psalm 116. If you guys would read this with me and pray this together. When shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call upon the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord 
in the presence of all his people. Lord, you have been good to us. You have been amazing. You've done great things. Help us to see you clearly and accurately and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Set us free from the chains that that bind us. Clear images of you, perspectives of you that are, are not biblical, that don't line up with how you have revealed yourself. May we know you as the one who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the one who is faithful and true.